They are ancient words. The average Christian prays them every week in worship, and perhaps you pray them on your own. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The words roll out with rhythm, like they have been written on our hearts from the beginning of time. They are spoken in every language, sung to many tunes. This Lent, at Second Presbyterian Church, we're taking our time with the Lord's Prayer, breaking it down week by week in a sermon series called Pray Then in This Way. May this experience help you more fully embrace the prayer we already love. Let us be led into the proclamation of the word with a prayer. Let's pray. Most gracious God, help us to go deeper in scripture. Help us to go deeper in prayer so that we might grow near to you and also understand the distance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, I love these podcasts, I was able to listen to it. Last Sunday, Elizabeth beautifully introduced our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And today, the first Sunday of Lent, we begin our sacred journey, phrase by phrase, through the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, the prayer that we call now the Lord's Prayer. Before I begin, I want to reflect on a Lenten practice. Giving something up for Lent is an ancient discipline that people follow for different reasons. Sometimes what is given up is unhealthy or addictive or is something that has grown out of proportion in one's life and one wants balance again. A friend of mine announced on a Facebook this past Tuesday that he's giving up social media for Lent because it has consumed too much of his time and happiness. I liked it. I liked it on Ash Wednesday, so we won't see it till Easter. But others might give up something that is good and life-giving, because life is a gift. It's not something we should take for granted. And maybe by denying oneself of something life-giving for a period of time will remind one of life's fragility and then remind one to value and give thanks for what sustains us day by day. In our passage from Matthew, Jesus brings up fasting. He criticizes those who fast as a way of drawing attention to themselves, but he is all for fasting as a spiritual discipline. He himself fasts for 40 days in the wilderness. Why? I mean, one needs food in order to live. And others need food in order to live. And by fasting, maybe one grows more in tune with one's own hunger and needs And one grows more in tune with the world's hungers and needs. And then when the fast is broken, bread no longer is simple sustenance, but bread, food, becomes a gift that is to be savored, a blessing to be shared, and at the right times, a sacramental reminder of God's grace. Elizabeth rightly pointed out that we're not giving up the Lord's Prayer for Lent. We're going to savor the prayer phrase by phrase, break it down to go deeper into its meaning. What we are going to do during Lent is to give up reciting the Lord's Prayer during Sunday worship. We'll let hunger for the prayer grow so that on Easter Sunday, maybe we can pray it again together, not only with greater understanding but greater appreciation for its life-sustaining power for our lives, for the world. So let's now consider the phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. 
Let's begin by heeding the words of the prophet Isaiah and then the words of Jesus. Isaiah writes, speaking for God, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And then this from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will receive no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be given in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. There are some preachers like that for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father who art in heaven. And notice the first word of the prayer. The prayer does not begin my Father, it begins our Father. This is a prayer to be prayed alone, but even more, it's a prayer to be prayed together. And that can be confusing when you consider what Jesus says right before teaching this prayer. You heard it when I read our New Testament lesson from Matthew. Before teaching disciples how to pray, he teaches them how not to pray. When you pray, he says, don't be like the hypocrites who love treating street corners and synagogues as a stage where they can be seen and praised. Their attention is their reward. When you pray, pray in secret. As a former actor, I don't like it that the word that the Bible translates, hypocrites, can just as easily be translated actors, but it can. So Jesus is saying, when you pray, don't pretend to be something other than you are just to get attention. Pray in secret. Pray in secret. Pray in secret when you say, Our Father. I thought this was to be a community prayer. I think this can be reconciled only when you understand that praying in secret is not the same as praying alone. Praying in secret is praying with integrity, addressing truly God, 
praying where honesty and humility are the sacrifices the individual or the community offer to God. Praying as a hypocrite can be attention-seeking, as Jesus said. It's that kind of prayer where your eyes are really off to the side because there's something else that you're about. It can be drawing on God's name for one's own designs, bringing God into a deal, bringing God in as an endorser, maybe even bringing God into a fight. I remember a liturgy being offered in the worship service of a larger church gathering where Everyone was asked to recite a prayer that clearly was a partisan rant. A respectable theologian later said to the one who wrote the liturgy, you know, I'd appreciate it if you did not triangle God into our disagreements. But though Jesus wants prayer to be offered with humility and honesty, he certainly did not go on to teach a prayer to be offered alone. In fact, the Lord's Prayer, offered as it is to our Father, is a prayer of a community praying for the world. I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to say it again and again in the rest of the sermon. Whether prayed alone or prayed together, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of the community praying for the world. Keep that in mind as we look at the remainder of the first phrase of the prayer. Some think of the phrase, our Father who art in heaven, as simply a salutation, a way of addressing God. Well, it is sort of like that. Sort of like that, but not really. I mean, who really says, dear mom in Montreat, or dear Ed in Raleigh, or dear Senator Warner in Washington? No, Jesus is saying we pray to a who and a where, and in doing so, We enter into a tension, a tension. Who? Our Father. Where? In heaven. Father is an intimate term. God is as near to us as a father who scolds us for misbehaving and as near to us as a father embracing the prodigal son who expects condemnation, not a kiss and a hug. Now, to address God as Father is not to say that God is male, certainly not, for male and female are created in God's image. But given that any language about God is inadequate, and there is and never will be a perfect way to speak of God, to call God Father is at least to say that faith at its heart is personal, not functional. I mean, sure, we rightfully think of God having functions. The church has trumpeted the functions of creator, redeemer, and sustainer most of all. But to limit God to functions, to limit God to what God does, creator, redeemer, sustainer, that's to diminish God in the way that we diminish others when we limit them to what they do, forgetting that they are whole persons, just a waiter, just a plumber, Just a policeman writing me a ticket. Not that that has ever happened. (laughs) Just a politician. No, if the nature of God is love, and if the work of God goes beyond creating a world and sustaining the world to the deeply personal work of judgment and reconciliation, the healing of broken lives and relationships, and if we hope for personal salvation, then let's not think of God as one to be summoned for services, to fulfill those functions that we use as names for God. 
To begin a prayer with Father is not to begin perfectly. It's not. But it is to begin within a relationship. A relationship that's not equal. One is parent, the other's children. But a relationship that is defined by love. Now knowing that God is near to us as Father, remember that this is the prayer of a community praying for the world. And in praying for the world's needs, it turns out we draw near to God. Jesus made this clear when he said, as you did or did not unto the least of these, the hungry, the imprisoned, the sick, the homeless, you did or did not unto me. I mean, it's an obvious point, but God was near to us on the mission trip we just returned from, as near to us as the patients lying there on the surgery table or visiting the clinics out in the barrios. And this is less obvious. But God was as near to the Dominicans as they were to us who were in need. In need of their companionship, in need of their friendship and leadership and prayer, in need of having our own minds open. Our world widened from where it is. So in praying our Father, we pray to a God who is near to us, especially near to us when we see those and open ourselves to those in need. But we haven't finished the phrase, have we? Our Father, who art in heaven. There's the tension I talked about. The Father, whose approval we want, whose embrace we desire, whose guidance we need, whose love we live for is a God in heaven apart from us, beyond our reach, beyond our control, beyond our defining, and sometimes, to be honest, beyond our finding. Because sometimes we pray to a God who seems to be an absentee dad. I mean, the Bible presents this God who is distant and beyond our reach and control as forcefully as the God who draws near. Isaiah expresses it vividly. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we may always want God within hearing of the snap of our fingers. But I think that God's far too old to change his ways like that. And you know how it is when someone needs space. Well, the one in whom even all of space cannot contain certainly cannot be contained by us. But you know, we need space too, don't we? I mean, human identity depends on it. Moral and spiritual growth normally only happens in the struggle of trying to bridge gaps. The gap between question and answer, or if the answers aren't there, between, between to acceptance or even to maturity, between who we are and who we need to become, between selfishness and selflessness, between hatred and love, between fear of death and joy in living. And we cannot bridge the spiritual maturity gaps without things within us struggling to get there, without things within us stretching and, and bending and even breaking. That's the Bible's truth. 
Most of the scripture that you'll find in the books that are in your pews, the Bibles, comes from Israel's chapters of instability and struggle, chapters of transition and loss and upheaval. The Old Testament really came together in the chapter of exile as people searched for their place and purpose in the world, having lost everything they thought that mattered most. A national identity with a king to rule them and a God who is supposed to protect their nation and their temple. The New Testament comes from this enormous upheaval when the people of God exploded beyond ethnic and national boundaries that used to make so much sense of their lives. So yes, there's a positive way to think of God's distance from us. But there is a hard side too. I mean, distance to be real and effective has to also be risky and dangerous. And God can never seem more distant than in the needless suffering of a child, for instance, or when a nation supposedly protected by God falls apart, or in the moments when one yearns for any word at all from God, a word of direction or hope or even of rescue, and the word doesn't seem to come. The God who is beyond our defining, the God who will not be reshaped in our image, the God who is beyond our manipulative control, the God whose mind encompasses the needs of the universe is also the God who is beyond the responses that we think God owes us. And then there's this that needs to be said. There is that distance between us and God that is created by our sin. As when we arrogantly ignore God because we think that we are God enough. As when our daily bread becomes the bread that we hoard while others starve. As when the reconciliation we seek from God is denied others. As when in our shame we refuse to hear any good word from God because we have done something or become something that makes us, we think, unworthy of God's attention and time. It is for the healing and reconciling that the Lord's Prayer most needs to be the kind of prayer that is of the community and for the world with brokenness not only inside us individually, but with brokenness among us, we really need the God who is in heaven to come near to all of us to make us whole again. There is tension in this prayer, but there's also a saving irony. The irony is that the one who is teaching us to pray like this, the one who is teaching us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, is the one in whom God's distance and intimacy meet. Jesus is the human expression of the transcendent God sharing with us our human condition, sharing with us our human needs. I thirst, he said from the cross, having the same human desires Take this cup away from me, he prayed in the garden. Asking the same questions that we asked. My God, why have you forsaken me? He asked while dying. Jesus is the one in whom meets the distance that is created by sin and the intimacy of reconciliation. That tension is Jesus' very identity and life. And the power of the Lord's prayer is prayed within that tension. The prayer is not for those who want God to be on a leash ready to do their bidding. 
The prayer is for those who keep the whole world's needs in mind, who struggle with the distance that we all struggle with and yearn for that same intimacy, felt and experienced most in reconciliation. The community that prays this prayer will experience within it both urgency and asking much of God for ourselves and for the world. And they'll experience the urgency of God asking much of us. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.